Hi, uh, this is Ken Boa with Reflections Ministries. And this is Stuart McAllister, his co-host or one of the old, uh, what are we? We're old explorers. The old explorers, yeah. Old men ought to be explorers, yes, as, uh, as T.S. Uh, T. Eliot tells us, yeah. So the idea of an article that we came across uh, in Mere Orthodoxy, Once More Church and Culture, mm -hmm. um, Brad East, it was a very, very helpful insight. Uh, yeah, I think, I think, I mean, all of us are, you know, and I have certainly talked a lot, but I know everywhere we've gone, people are talking about the relationship of, you know, the church and the culture. And many, many years ago, one of the helpful books, and I know that many of us had read, was uh, Richard Niebuhr's book, Christ and Culture, where he comes up with that, Taxonomy. I remember the first time when I read that, and it was very helpful to me because I was working in different cultures. You know, we're in Austria, we we're going into Eastern Europe, you we were in Belgium, France, Spain, all quite different cultures. And then, but 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 evangelical churches seeking to do mission. And and then there were people who were at the high end in the sense they wanted to be involved in government policy and so forth, economy, and others who were involved maybe lo local church life. And there wasn't always a frame of reference you know, how do, how should we then live? So I think Niebuhr's um, approach was, was very useful at the time. Very helpful, yes. Uh, it, it, as, as the article says, his aim was to, to supplement as well as to correct the work, uh, work of Ernest Trelch, the social teachings of the Christian churches. So he came up with these five types, Christ against culture, uh, the Christ of culture, Christ above culture, Christ and culture and paradox, and then Christ the transformer of culture. And I think for me, in the European context, I know it was quite helpful because we could actually, we could actually see churches who had a theological orientation. Yes. Um, the, the obvious ones were the Christ of culture in terms of where Jesus was subsumed into all cultural realities yes. and he had lost the gospel in transcendence. The more kind of Christ above culture, which was um, seemed to be a, more of a Catholic orientation, Christ against culture, which seemed to be a lot of the evangelicals, they were seemed to be against everything. Everything, yeah. Um, the Lutheran church, which I think was the more like the Christ and culture in paradox attention, almost that the church had to be almost like a disinfectant role. Yes. And then the, uh, the, the more kind of, I think, a lot of the Reformed people and churches, and whether this is a fair e explanation, I'm not sure, but they would say Christ who transforms, transforms culture. culture. But I, I think, Ken, I, and I think I remember many years ago, you and I, we were, we were in some group together we were all discussing we were actually talking about this and i remember you were saying at the time that you thought that actually those often those taxonomies are operative at one time mm -hmm. you know any given there are various there are variations of it and that made sense to me there wasn't a model to slip into like you know i opt this is the biblical model but if the culture was so degenerate then against culture would be an appropriate manner um, Christ who transforms culture is ongoing in some sense, but Christ, the Christ of culture actually was not an option because we, we, we didn't want the gospel subsumed into and swallowed by. But there was an interesting dynamic with that in terms of, and I think people today with the degeneration of American, uh, I mean, the meltdown, it seems, on so many in our economy and our schools and our, in, on every front personal in the family, how do you orient yourself? Yes, and, and indeed this article says, speaking of the crisis transformer of culture, it's more hopeful toward culture than the dualists, more honest about the demands of Christ's teaching than the synthesizers, but less extreme than either the radicals or the liberals. It grants precedence to the gospel and thus anticipates conflict between the gospel and the world. We know that. All without denying the doctrine of creation, the validity of natural reason, 
or the corruption of both through sin. It wants neither to replace culture nor to leave it alone, but to convert it, to take its antecedent morals and beliefs and transfigure them. Yet Niebuhr allows that such a process of transvaluation is sure to remain incomplete with this side of glory. That's a good summary, I thought, of that, that approach. I think it's very useful because I do think that many people um, and many churches don't give much help in trying to, how should I then live? But I need, I can't just say it's just a moral choice there, that you have to give them an intellectual framework. There needs to be some way to map the territory That's I'm living right. in. Mm-hmm. So you and I have played back and forward with the, um, the first things, uh, Richard John Neuhaus's thing where he talked about the church being in the world, not of the world, yes. but for the world, which is a good orientation. Yes, it is. But it seems to me we need, we need to think about this particularly because of we all deal with art. We all watch movies or many people do. We read books. We're certainly in the economy. We're going to schools. We're dealing with politics. We're dealing with, so there's no way to avoid culture as such. Yeah. The question is, therefore, how do we orientate ourselves in it? What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be yes. a godly church? How should I speak? You know, how should I engage? Yes. And as, as amphibious beings as I like to see us, uh, both one foot in heaven and one on earth, there's, uh, there's a tension to interplay between this world and the next. And so there is a kind of a, um, a, 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 kind of a, a dialogue. It's a com- kind of a, um, a back and forth, a both-endedness that is going. But it's, a fa- as Hunter likes to put it, a faithful presence within it, a theology of divine presence and solidarity. And there's some very helpful uh, ideas along that line. But I think living with intention to interplay without a simple solution. Um, well, let's talk about for uh-huh. a second, Ken, about that, the faithful presence, yeah. because I think there's a threefold thing. He, mm-hmm. The article comes up with this quite useful because mm-hmm. this is, I know the tension, the people that we're talking to this weekend, I was in a local church in Detroit and met afterwards in the uh, great interaction, as you often do with people talking about this, a, ch- a child in the school who's dealing with peer pressure or sexuality or internet stuff, or adults, you know, themselves who are just struggling in the marketplace with woke ideologies or something yes. and not really knowing how to respond. So the this idea that, so there's a pers- very personal aspect where people are afraid, I am going to be personally polluted or corrupted. So there's a certain sense of, I'm trying to maintain a purity. Yes. And there's a struggle with that because yes, it's a very existential, yeah. a very real thing. There's also a sense, but I also want to witness, but I'm afraid I don't have the apologetic tools or I don't know how to give an answer That's right. to that. Or And my pastor or my leader or even you guys listening on your, your podcast, you're saying, you know, we should be in the world, not of the world. And you're giving this idea of a robust spirituality. And I'm dying here, man. Mm-hmm. Don't <laughs> yeah, help me out. yeah, I'm just trying to make ends meet. Yeah. This idea of being a presence in this um, and the idea of faithful engagement. How do we mm. engage in culture in a faithful level? And, and I'd like this article's pr- proposal of four primary modes of faithful engagement with culture that are inevitably overlapping and essentially non-competitive with one another. And I thought that was, I, that's what I'd like us to discuss. And there are four R's, as you know, that he discusses mm. as resistance, repentance, reception, and then reform. And perhaps we can chat about those as well, because it's, I found this to be very helpful. In this yeah, story. he's, oh, Brad is obviously, his name's Brad East, the, the yes, author yes, of the article, right. and he's mm-hmm. doing a lot of good work in reflection, and mm-hmm. many others are too. And I think, you know, as a younger, a younger man who's in, in teaching, but also working in a local church, and he's trying to help people orientate the very things that we're talking about here. Uh, I think it, I liked the way that the fourfold thing, particularly 
with the resistance. Because one of the things I felt that the, the struggle with the seeker-friendly movement and a lot of what's been in the late 80s, the 90s and so forth, the whole idea of relevance became a problem to many of the churches because while there was a relevance in trying to be as, as non-Christianese in our language and non-overt, sometimes we've swung so much the other way that then we've blurred the lines of what is the gospel, what is repentance, what is the cross, what is atonement, what is holiness. Mm -hmm. And so his idea of saying resistance, that when you're in, and he used, of course, he alludes to the part like the Nazis, which is a, always a great picture, but there's many others. Where does a Christian in our culture, which I would say is highly permissive on every level, mm -hmm. so we have to have a resistance strategy that makes sense. Yes, a, vi a bigger vision and therefore resisting this, uh, this diminishment uh, into politically correct uh, uh, expressions or just uh, social memes uh, that then just reflect our, our past, our own time, but something that transcends that model. So you live against um, or in spite of the existing powers that sometimes these powers come and go, but having a, a larger sense of how do I overcome injustice or idolatry? So those, those two things. But you would only resist. And again, we've talked about this in prior mm -hmm. podcasts, but if you have a higher love, so there has to be, you have to instill and instigate and internalize a deeper sense of a love that is so that you're willing to resist. Because what's the reason I would, there's a logical reason, certainly there's biblical reasons, but there have to be personal and practical reasons on how I resist. It's a bigger vision of life that's more robust and, uh, more transcendent that we are embracing in the, in the midst of a context that's trying to reduce everything down to the visible and the quantitative. And so here we have a bigger vision of transcendence, a bigger vision of the source of all beauty, goodness, and truth that who guides us into a, an eternal perspective in this temporal arena to pursue that. And therefore, there's going to be a definite uh, pushback of one of a temporal versus the eternal and playing by two sets of rules. So let me do the a little dialectic here, okay. Ken, because it's in the article where he, because obviously he talks about resistance, yes. but he is very strong, and I agree 100% with the idea of reception. Yes. Because if there's no reception, and you and I, have, we've talked about this, about the, the, the false dualism that is sometimes an, an, almost like a Manichaean or a Gnostic type of thing that's in evangelical Christianity at times, where we're rejecting what we say we are, but we never are fully consistent with this. So talk about reception, because you yourself and me, uh, we, we read a lot of in different kinds of books. We watch movies, we not uh, uncritically, but I mean, we were at an event recently where a lady made it very clear, um, speaking back, I think, to some of the things that had been said by us, um, oh, I don't watch television, implying that no one ever should. Mm -hmm. So this, let's talk about reception, um, because that's surely a part of this. And, and how can we engage if we don't, know what's going on. Yes, and there are many um, um, common grace, the idea of many um, blessings that we have that are benefits, uh, that are blessings that have come, come from God and that God's order is mediated through people who are bearers of his image. And so in spite of their own um, agendas, nevertheless, there is a beauty, there's a goodness, there's a truth that comes, that comes in a derivative way because all truth is derivative from God himself. So all beauty is derivative from God. So that it's, as you know, it's just as hard to get as, if you had a hundred question Q&A, mm -hmm. a true false, and if you got a perfect zero, I suppose it's hard to get as, as hard to get a perfect zero as a perfect hundred. 
You get very suspicious if you get a perfect zero. It's impossible. But this this notion, pe- many people don't get this idea. I mean, I, I I know what you mean by saying all truth is God's truth, and I believe that. Um, but I know that there's some people out there that don't think that's true. Uh, they think that um, there's there's all again there's Christian truth, like there's almost like the Islamic mode where there's two truths, you know. Um, and but that's fundamentally part of the problem. I, I had this question many many years ago in Holland. I was at a, a youth event and I was speaking. And uh, I had quoted, I think, um, I don't know, Nietzsche and a few other authors. And there was a group from Eastern Europe was kind of upset because it had, I just used the Bible. So I was responding to the Q&A and with the leaders there. And, I, and, and the guy, it was very clear he had a misconception about truth. So I said, look, let me ask you a question. I said, if Adolf Hitler was in this room and Jesus Christ was in the room, the two were there, mm-hmm. and I pointed to this, this is a table, and I asked Hitler, what is it? And Hitler said, it is a table. And I asked Jesus, what is that? And he said, it is a table. Which one of them told the truth? So, and he just looked at me and, he, yes. and he, he started to answer that. I said, sir, I'm not trying to play a game here with you. Yes, I'm just yes. saying it, it's not saving truth. It is not redemption. If that's what you mean, only Jesus spoke the words of salvation. Adolf Hitler made a true statement, even as an evil man. Mm-hmm. But if he said it was a table, and objectively, independently of of his consciousness, his desire, his will, and his morality, it was a table. Mm-hmm. It is a table. Mm-hmm. And I said the same with Jesus. So I said there seems to be a confusion when you think that the source is what gives it truth. In other words, if Jesus says it is true, if Adolf Hitler said it, everything he said wasn't true. So if he said, I love my puppy, it must be a lie. Yes. <laughs> so it's, it's not the perception, but the reality behind that that we have to appeal to. And so at the end of the day, that's why I meant by saying it's. So this is difficult to be completely wrong. No mm-hmm. one's completely wrong, but uh, at the same time, choosing the gold versus the gravel. So he will say a true statement, but then other things will be interpreted in an entirely different way because then uh, the gravel comes in, where he's going to then uh, move away from just the table to a big, a different vision of what. So is it? Would it be on this on reception? Yes. Would it be important to say then? that reception is crucial, but it has to be critical. That's right. That's a good way to put it, that you discernment mm-hmm. and using that. So we realize that there, are, when you can, um, again, finding gold among the Egyptians, we're going to find things like that, and we can uh, de- definitely plunder the Egyptians. And we can, but the only reason yeah. you can find gold amongst the Egyptians because God put it there first. That's the whole I mean, point. I think that's, the, that's pr- the, the priority of creation over the fall. Instead of making the fall primary, Yes. And then redemption almost as as a as an, a rescue means. Right. We're, we're we're leaving out creational norms That's right. as part of our equation. So there is a general revelation, there is a common grace, there is an understanding because it's mediated through the those who are image bearers, whether their theologies or philosophies are wrong, nevertheless they they it, they're still going to be able to point when they make true statements, it's because derivative from the wellspring of truth. So Brad or Brad East in his article and and you and I, I think, would agree this idea of reception. So there has to be an openness to receive the works of art, the the, the products of culture. Some of the we have to be in that. But we've all t- we've already said about resistance. So th- that would probably move us a little bit towards then, though the idea then of re- of repentance. Yes. So again, in, when I see a film and I see that it is a film that is not overtly Christian. In fact, it's perhaps, in fact, in an entirely different direction. Nevertheless, there's still going to be some winsome, powerful images of that. It's very rare to be completely just totally false. And so what do I see? How do I glean? How do I mine? 
these insights because often an artist will see something that I will miss. Mm. So being receptive to that is what we're saying. But repentance, as you mentioned, though, a judgment begins with the house of God. And so we begin to mm. assess our own uh, attitudes and have we bought into certain things and made certain claims that are wrong. Wouldn't you agree, Ken, that even the so repentance, if we define repentance as changing our mind mm-hmm. and reorienting ourselves towards God's truth and towards reality, um, wouldn't you agree that that sometimes there are there are moments of repentance apart from the scripture, the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. the obvious things where we're in church or settings, but there have been moments of repentance in reading a book or watching a movie. There have been things that have happened where there's been an aha moment where you have seen a character has brought something to consciousness and you think, oh my goodness, yes. that's me. I did that. And you have then before God repented of something because of something that, that a piece of literature or art or film aroused in you. That's correct. So I see a great film and it's, there's going to be some beauty in that art. And even though the intention of the uh, director may have been very different from my own, they trans the, the work itself, the creativity transcends that intentionality and therefore has a greater vision. So when I, for example, teach Chariots of Fire, Hugh Hudson was not a believer and it was produced by Dodi Fayud and the, um, the the people who were players were, yet at the same time, the film honored this man, mm-hmm. Eric Little. And it was an amazing thought because something went beyond them that was a, a spirit of truth that came. So gleaning the gold and the and discerning that from the gravel, being able to discern some works of art, some poetry, some literature, the proportion of gold and gravel will vary, but some, but still discern. There's always good something that you're going to take from it. Well, ability. this whole thing of repentance, you know, I, didn't, I haven't done a lot of thinking about this in terms of, you know, the article, but I'm, I am wondering, you know, where the church, because we have these, it seems that we often have these polar wrongs going on or things at times. You have, you see, it, there are some people, the church can do no wrong. And we know there was an era when that was the case. But it seems that the, the pendulum has swung the other way where all the evangelical press, Christianity Today, many other articles are always picking up and every sin, every peccadillo, every failing, every wrong, as if the way to win the world is to talk about all the wrongs of the church, all the wrongs of history, all... and. So people will be, I can hear someone pushing back, say, oh, so you're saying cover up. No, I'm not saying cover no. up. I'm talking about prudence and balance. Yes. I'm talking about a healthy repentance where we were wrong and we did wrong and we we own the wrongs we've done, the sins we've committed, the evils that we were responsible for, or the hypocrisies where they are relevant. But we equally affirm that we've got things right and we still have to call the world to repentance. That's right. So we have a transcendent perspective, but each age has its own uh, distortions of reality and and understandings of reality. Some are, are they have to be gleaned and understood which things are to be to, to be used and treasured, which things are to be discarded. But but again, in each age, we have a, a vision of the world that trans that transcends the small visions of those who are reductionistic or whatever. But there's still something in them that's reflecting a good, so that we certainly need to see what that well, looks like. It's you, you know, looking back in the vantage point, Ken, of belief now for what I mean, fifty, yeah, long time. fifty odd years. Yeah. Okay, what would you feel that you would love if you were repenting, or you had some call to repentance? What would you call? Christian fellow Christians to repent of that you think were blind spots? Yes, I think that people got, got too accustomed to adapting and baptizing this the present culture with a, with a, a, a spiritual veneer. And so this is a, a, a kind of a little thin um, 
patina that they put uh-huh. on, and it makes it. It looks like they're they're Christianizing right. Christianizing the, Christianizing but, the world. Yes, that's a, <laughs> so. That's a mistake as well. Uh-huh. So, but but also realizing I was wrong about certain issues, and so you mm. can't get it all correct. So, being having a measure of humility and openness to the prompts of the spirit, and realizing I need to be, I was corrected by this, and I realized I was over. Ex- overreacting, or something, perhaps, yeah. yeah, overzealous, and sometimes I can go one extreme. You know, humans are the capacity; they have this amazing capacity to do the uh, one extreme and then do the opposite extreme. So you get off, you, you you fall off the horse on the left side, you get back on, you fall off on the right side. It's amazing. So he, he Brad's article moves on. Then he talks about reform, reform. as well, mm-hmm. and I mean, I think that you know the classical ecclesia reformata semper reformanda. Mm-hmm. Um, the Reformed Church always reforming, right? And it seems to me, but at the moment, and I'm sure it's probably going on because again, we're not in charge of the church. The Holy Spirit know, and God knows things that you and I never will see, and and his He's got the main agenda, so we put our trust in Him. But it, I wonder then what the conscious reforms that we are aware of. I I do see. Uh, healthy signs in some places. I see younger men and women who are highly educated, gifted, but also serious. Spiritual. I think of people like Xandra and Cameron and and Ivy and uh, some of our young friends, and we know many others, some of the young guys that come along to the study there uh, in the morning um, and some of the people we meet as we're on the road, very, very committed to the gospel and to seriousness. But they're also there, they want to own honestly they want some changes. They want a Christianity that's less declarative and more demonstrational. Yes, more infused by a sense of the transcendentals of beauty, goodness, and truth. And actions, 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 and and behavior, and the the evidence that we concentrate on the deliverables. So, and I don't mean we become pragmatists. I mean that if Jesus says that we should love, that we're actually loving. If Jesus says we should pray, that we are we are in prayer meetings, or that we're in mission, but we're involved in giving, going. Uh, helping, building, doing, acting, so forth. So it re- involves as well a, a, an allowance in our own lives to be prompted by the Spirit to realize that I had overextended ex- myself or had the wrong understanding of a thing and, and repent by turning back to a more biblical and more um, balanced perspective that in- involves all those components. But I, I can learn from the world. I can repent of my worldly attitudes I can uh, have a sense of perspective in terms of reception, but then if, if I if I'm not careful, I can be over um, receptive and under discerning. So as you rightly said, there's a discernment that's involved. But again, I love the idea of speaking the truth in love, and so in doing that, there's our kind of a recalibration that's always going on in the church that should be constantly, as it's saying, always reforming itself. There's a modality never perfect in this uh, in this time. So let me let me talk to you very briefly then about a pet peeve I have, uh-huh. um, and it's I love Ozzy's phrase, Oz Guinness, when he talked about um, you know this desire for relevance for for the homo up to datum, mm-hmm. you know the person who wants to be the latest informed. And I see I, I have people who call me and email me or talk to me quite a bit because they think I am a source of being homo up to datum. So you know I have these. A couple of people in particular that, uh, and and there's a breathlessness, there's almost a panic. So have you? So one guy recently was on, and he said, "Have you heard this?" And did you know? And I hadn't, and I didn't, and I I'm thinking maybe ten years ago, fifteen years ago, I may have, and I was probably now, I don't know, and I don't care, and I don't mean that to sound callous, but I realize that so some of the things drive them is this this panic about relevance and and inclusion, 
But the timelessness, the resting, well, the sovereign God hasn't changed. He's still on the throne. The Spirit's still moving. And to like calm down, is God speaking to you? Are you actually engaged? And when many of the people who talk to me about these things, they're not actually involved in any of these things. But they feel a compelling urgency. They have to know, master all this data, or be aware to be an effective Christian. So they want to stay up to date, but they really are not em- embracing more of an eternal perspective on this temporal arena. And so it's needful for us, yes, to be aware of what's going on, but not to be so carried away by every little detail that we're not able to speak truth and to be open to God's truth, but at the same time, we we know that these are modes, um, modes of life. Um, I love the fact that this article calls it uh, the faithful presence of the church is a differentiated presence. And so there are different aspects of response to it, but always with a biblical nexus, a biblical understanding, a spiritual life of of vitality in Christ that informs our own character and then our response to the things that we encounter in this world. So we see it from a a biblical perspective, the larger journey, the larger There has to be a way in this, I mean, it's like, I know we're in combat. I know that we're in, you know, spiritual warfare, that we're facing the fighting the world, the flesh and the devil. And we are, history is moving forward. Things are, but there has to be a place that the promises that we all claim about peace, about shalom, about resting, you know, grace and peace be to you. And I mean, look at the, the book of Acts with the turmoil, the movement, and then eventually the martyrdom. So that was the nature of life for Paul. Um, but for us to to really rest in the sovereignty of God, his good promises and his purposes. Yes, we have a bigger story, a, big, a, bigger, a bigger narrative that is not just culturally driven, that actually, again, helps us to discern and to guide us through the nuances of our cultural embeddedness. So we all are part of this world, but at the same time, not to be of the world, but to bring the truth of that which is transcendent upon this world, never perfectly, but in a way that's prophetic mm. and that's, that is at the same time willing to learn. So it has a humility of repentance when it's wrong. And then at the same time, a receptivity to those things which are true, but then a resistance uh, against those things that, that are false. And yes. then, so it's a kind of a nuanced perspective that uh, differentiated presence. I They're like all mode, modes. I think that, I think there's a, we'll probably revisit this because I think yeah. there's, this is a useful tool. So, and thank Brad for his article. Yes, I appreciate um, it. I think it's very helpful. And I, ho- I trust it will stimulate a discussion. But I, at a local churches and with maybe some of the people who are listening might take those four categories mm-hmm. and just run it through the, for themselves. You know, what does it mean to resist? What is it I should be receiving? Where should I be repenting? What would reform look like in my life, in my family, in my church? Yes. It's and not one a, or the other. They all no, work they have, together. No, they all have to go together. And all modes, all four of the modes intersect and inter, inter uh, uh, involve one another in such a way that they all touch upon each other because this is a world in which we... Uh, don't have simple answers. There's transcendent truths, but we live in a measure of ambiguity in this fallen world. But at the same time, we follow those things which are going to endure. And so truly, as old explorers, we find that we are in this world and we are for this world, but we are not not of it. Of the world. And that's a great summary. We know where we're going. Yeah, we know where we're going. You're exactly right. Amen. Thank God for that. Amen. (laughs) A big amen on that one. (laughs)